Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. When I'm at the airport, and I'm not rushing through security because I'm about to miss a flight, I feel like I'm being bombarded by ads. Some research estimates we're exposed to like 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day. Just look at your Instagram. It's all ads. So at the airport, like, there's a billboard, right, with a hetero couple on a beach. And then there's an old person at a resort playing golf, usually white. And I get it. I'm at the airport. I'm obviously interested in travel. I am your consumer. But let's say I stopped in the middle of the terminal and actually stared at your ad. With the laughing blonde white dude and his white wife feeding a giraffe in Africa. I just feel like, do you even know who I am? Queer people do travel. Women do travel without needing to have a husband and a toddler. Disabled people travel. People of color travel. And in fact... Each of these groups can move almost anywhere in the world, technically. But still, my community and other marginalized communities are a big market for travel advertisers to target. Technically. It seems like they hardly do. But as fucked up as that is, I get why we get overlooked. I think it's partly because they assume we have less money than white retired people, and partly because, well, it's harder for solo women, people of color, queers trans people, disabled people, to safely access other cultures abroad. We're at a higher risk for harassment. So honestly, we can't do an international season of Bad With Money where I realistically consider moving abroad without facing my personal truth. A lot of other countries have great benefits, better working conditions, universal health care, potentially a better quality of life. But getting there may cost me more than a straight cis white man who can pass as a local or who can feel safe basically anywhere. So I want to talk to someone living abroad where you're one of the very, very few that looks like you in the whole freaking country. Like, do you need to spend extra money to ensure your safety? And what's that experience even like? How do you settle in? But first, let's call a queer woman that regularly travels the world. I think she'll give us some really useful, practical insight on what to invest in for safety. And then, just helpful info to keep in mind as we consider going to countries where we may not be welcome, or where being us is fundamentally illegal. This is Meg. Hey, Meg, this is Gabby. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for responding and wanting to be interviewed. No problem. No problem. Can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Meg Tanike, and I am a LGBT travel expert. Um, I run a couple different websites focusing on LGBT travel for women. Um, What are some of the places that you've traveled? Sure. So I've been to 57 countries and 42 states. Uh, So I've been to five continents. Um, Some of my favorite places that I've been to, uh, Brazil and Thailand and Portugal. Um, It kind of just depends on what type of travel that you're talking about, you know, if you're looking for more of an adventure travel or a cityscape, it's going to be a wildly different experience. So um, I have a few that I've really enjoyed. 
I'm almost always looking to sit on a beach with a, a drink. So um, is there a place for that? Definitely Portugal. <laughs> Portugal. Okay, I'm going to write that down. I <laughs> was talking to my partner about like, uh, where, you know, oh, what if we wanted to go to Tokyo and what if we wanted to like explore, you know, like Dublin or something? And they were like, what if we just wanted to sit on a beach and do nothing? <laughs> I was like, I love that for us. Um, so in this episode, we're looking at the experience of traveling and living abroad when you're a person of color or LGBTQ or a woman, which you are an expert about. So what are some of the additional expenses or precautions you need to take when you fall into one or many of these labels? Well, unfortunately, it's still illegal to be LGBT in 70 countries. Um, cool, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, but it's not its not as cut and dry as illegal or not legal. And, you know, the U.S. is a really good example of that. Uh, clearly, it's legal and we have marriage equality and we have a lot of um, progressive stances. But, you know, we still struggle with enumerated anti-discrimination policies that are inclusive of gender identity and expression and you know, uh, in some areas, hate crimes legislation, employment legislation, and obviously the experience of somebody walking down the street who's LGBT is going to be wildly different in, say, you know, a small town in Oklahoma versus in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the information online tends to kind of paint these like really broad brushstrokes based off of policy and not necessarily based off of the realities of the situation for a traveler in that area. You know, if you're going to London as an LGBT person, you're probably going to be fine. You know, they've got great policies. It's pretty socially accepted, all of those kind of things. But, um, you know, keeping in mind, it's not just the entire United Kingdom is not just London. There's going to be different, you know, people who have different opinions and different experiences of LGBT people, particularly when we're adding in gender diversity um, in different parts of the world. So... Uh, some of the considerations that you have to keep in mind is, you know, not only just knowing what the laws are there, it's not just like, do you have marriage equality, but it's also, you know, what is society in that area? Um, you know, how exposed are they to LGBT people? And and sometimes that really matters for a trip. Like if you're going on, you know, your honeymoon or a destination wedding, like you really want to be able to affectionate, be affectionate with your person. And sometimes it, you know, doesn't, matter as much. I don't think anybody goes to see the pyramids to make out in front of them, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, well, maybe I would want to be the first. I just imagined people that like take those pictures kissing in front of the Eiffel Tower, but doing it in front of the pyramids. And I was like, nobody does that. (laughs) I mean, maybe some people do, but it's also one of the countries where it's like a little bit more risky. Sure. You know, if you're the kind of person who wants to do those kind of cultural experiences and go for it, but just be mindful of what like the you know, perception is and you know, some of the ways to stay safe, uh, obviously avoiding PDA. But I think one of the things in LGBT travel that a lot of people don't talk about is the reality that there's some people who are never going to pass as straight and cisgender. And that's just a large percentage of our community. You know, like I, I always use the example of a man in a business suit. If you have two men in business suits, how can you tell that one is gay? Like a lot of those things are stereotypes, but also cultural markers. And so it's kind of controversial to say that, but like that happens no matter where you are in the world. And there are some people who are never going to be able to pass and their experiences are going to be wildly different than those who can pass as straight and cisgender. Sure. I mean, even like when uh, my gender nonconforming friends are going through TSA, like in the U.S., that's mm-hmm. a, a scary and um, degrading experience, and I'm sure there's similar things 
in other countries too. Right. Well, and like there's some travel experiences that are super cool, but are really gendered. So my ex-wife, for example, is super gender nonconforming. And we were traveling in the Middle East. And one of the coolest parts of traveling in the Middle East is going to see mosques and how beautiful they are. And they're amazing. Now, she identifies as a woman, but we had this whole conversation about like, okay, the respectful thing to do culturally in a mosque is to, if you're a woman, wear you know, your uh, hajib, wear your hair covered. But she's six foot tall, super androgynous, wears men's clothes. And we knew she was passing as male while we were there. So we were like, okay, does she wear the hajib because she identifies as female or does she not because it would draw a lot of attention? People would be like, why is that American boy wearing a hajib, you know? Um, right. So ultimately, I decided that I was going to wear one so that, you know, to fit in with the local folks. And then she decided not to because she was worried about her safety, one, and two, was worried about, you know, taking away from the experience of other people there, like, rather than making herself a spectacle, like, you know, reverting attention back onto the, like the importance of why we're at this cultural iconic place. Right. Um, so a lot of that stuff kind of comes up and it's really about being self-aware and, you know, kind of figuring out where you fall, you know, on the continuum of gender expression. Yeah. I mean, even very simple things like what are the bathrooms like in certain places, stuff that you would never, if you aren't uh, like a queer person, you would never really think about. Yeah, we have to like, when we were traveling together, we'd have to plan our entire day around where Lens could go to the bathroom because, you know, and, you know, you go and you choose to use the women's bathroom and, you know, people glare at you and yell at you and like, think you're a dude. And if you choose to use a men's bathroom, you can put yourself at risk for, you know, violence or sexual assault, like all of this stuff. So right. her solution was just like, don't eat or drink, which is not the right solution, but right. It's like you have to kind of plan your itinerary around those needs and and knowing that in advance is going to make your trip a lot harder to plan, but easier to enjoy yourself while you're there. So you're not worried about like, well, where am I going to go? Do you think that there's stuff that probably costs you extra to do to stay safe? Oh, for sure. Like when we're traveling in riskier countries, we tend to stay in higher like upmarket hotels and accommodations. And there's like two sides to this. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, multinational hotel chains like Hilton and Marriott have some of the most progressive LGBT policies in the world. And that is true for all of their properties, no matter where they are. So I personally prefer in a lot of situations to try to stay in local accommodations because you have a little bit more of an authentic experience. But if you're in a country where it's higher risk staying in one of those, you're going to have a little bit more protection because you know that for the most part, they've at least heard of LGBT issues in their corporate training. And the reality is those are more expensive hotels. And the higher up market you go to, oftentimes the less likely you are to deal with some of those problematic issues. And so you end up spending more on your trips. Besides bathroom stuff, is there other stuff that you research or prepare beforehand? Yeah, um, I think for a lot of people who identify as women, um, you know, traveling in between destinations or ground transportation is a concern. Uh, you, you know, when you have multiple identities to think about, you know, are you visually very different look, looking in terms of race or ethnicity in, in the area that you're in? Um, we lived in South Korea for about a year and there, you know, it's a very homogenous society. Less than 1% of 
South Korea's population is not Korean, and the vast majority of those foreigners are from other Asian countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not Asian, you stand out a lot in South Korea. And you know, if you're also queer, which is not socially acceptable in South Korea and a lot of places, you stand out that way. So you know, we have to think about okay, how do you get from point A to point B? Is it the best option to take public transportation late at night? Is it the best option to go with an Uber? Should we not be out later at night? You know, is this going to impact us during the day? Like that kind of stuff are some of the questions that I think um, even gay men don't necessarily have to think about as much as queer women do or queer women who are of a race or ethnicity that's not representative of the place you're visiting. Yeah, I mean, in terms of living in South Korea, that must have affected what area you're choosing to live in and what kind of place, like what kind of apartment you're choosing to live in, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for I was lucky because I had a good job and um, the business that I worked for was sponsoring our apartment. And so some of those choices like ultimately were made for us, but it definitely impacted where we chose to go and when and like how late we stayed and how much do you drink and mm-hmm. and some of those issues. Be, I mean, South Korea is super safe. Don't get me wrong. It's like one of the safest countries you could ever be in. But you're thinking about when you're a multiple minority, you have to think about harm reduction and risk reduction in a lot of situations, especially in those where you can't communicate. You know, if you don't that's speak the, the big language. thing because things are dangerous yeah. here in the U.S., but the the inability to communicate adds an extra layer. Right. And, you know, for the majority of countries, English speakers are pretty lucky because, you know, tourism and hospitality and, and business have made English, you know, a language that is predominant pretty much everywhere. But you never know what happens when you get into an Uber driver and there's a misunderstanding and you can't communicate where you need to go or what you need to do. Sometimes it's, you know, actually a safety issue. And sometimes it's just a perception of fear of not knowing, not knowing where you are, not knowing what's going on. And then when you're like having those emotions, it heightens any situation. So like having a plan in advance of like, okay, what is the best way to do this? What's the safest way? How can we communicate, you know, making sure that you have like SIM cards and data on your phone so that you can translate things if necessary. Like those are some of the things that we like all travelers kind of think about, but it is especially important for, you know, people who are multiple minorities to have some of that stuff on deck just in case something goes wayward. Have you had scary experiences related to being LGBT? Like where I know you were thinking ahead about the hijab thing and stuff, but uh, have you had stuff happen where you're like, really fucking really? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) but it's kind of funny because all of the really bad ones happened in the U.S. Oh, Um, that's, you know what? Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, as an American, I want to be like, we're cool, too. But yeah, no, all of like our super bad ones. We um, had an instance, we were in Oklahoma City, actually. I've actually never talked about this on record. So we had an instance in Oklahoma City where we were invited on a press trip. So the way our work works is um, you know, we work with a tourism board, or a DMO or a, a brand. So like every city and state and country has, a basically a tourism bureau. Mm-hmm. So they're often funded by either the tourism businesses or the local government in an area. And so it encourages journalists, media people, all of that to come and like write about how great the destination is, which is awesome sometimes because you get to go places that you could never afford and you get to do things that you probably wouldn't have chosen to do and like fall in love with different places. And then sometimes you realize like how political it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's this situation. So we 
went on this trip and uh, we had an itinerary, all these activities, things that we were doing. And we ended up having a little bit of a flub where Lynn's sneakers, my ex-wife, her sneakers got wet and she had to um, go to get a new pair of shoes. So we went and got a new pair of shoes. And while she was in, we were actually in Vans, which I don't know. I'm sure like every queer woman in the world knows what Vans is, but um, it's a tennis shoe company and you, all of the sizes are unisex. And so it doesn't matter whether you're looking in the men's section or the women's section, because all of the shoes are literally the same and they're both labeled in both sizes. Yeah. Skater shoes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So she was looking at Vans and this mother and her child were kid was probably, I don't know, 11. Um, and Lindsay was looking back and forth between like the men's sizes and the women's sizes. And, uh, the woman said to her child, this, it is looking at all your shoes. So we should leave. And Lindsay is like kind of an emotional person. So she got upset, but she didn't like say anything. And she kind of just started to tear up a little bit and was like, we have to go. I was on the other side of the store. I was like, what the heck happened? And she was saying that this woman had said to her a couple different variations of like, you're an it, you're a thing. You're- oh, my God. Uh, it's interesting to hear this about the U.S. because I think you're right that people go, well, we have gay marriage and it's the United States and it's held up in this sort of way, uh, progressive way, at least in terms of queer stuff. but. Then if you talk to someone about like, oh, you know, I went I went to the Middle East or I went to Asia or whatever, they might stereotype to be like, oh, was it so like were people so rude? Was it so like scary as like a queer person? And you're like, uh, I don't know how it compares to in my own backyard. (laughs) Right. Well, and that's like the thing that a lot of people take for granted in a way about travel and tourism in general is that like. Travel and tourism is so important to so many countries' overall GDP. Like in many, many countries, it's the biggest industry. It's you know the biggest driver of jobs, and there and there is. It's unfortunate that has to be based off of economic power, but there's a lot that goes into that, and they don't ever want to you know be offensive to tourists. They want to make sure that people are coming and enjoying themselves and. And so when you are visiting another country where you're obviously a tourist, there's an incentive to not want to mess with you, whether you're LGBT or not. And it's oftentimes the countries that people in the U.S. in particular are most afraid of where you're least likely to have an altercation because they need the buying power of tourism in those countries more. And it's like this like really weird like contrast of like the perception of Americans versus like the reality of actually being there. And oftentimes they don't align at all. Time for a quick break. We'll have more of this interview when we return. And we're back. What are some, let's say, like, if someone wants to live abroad or move abroad, what are some, like, budget or money tips that maybe you wouldn't think of? I'm actually what's called a digital nomad. Um, and that means I don't have a house, uh, and I work completely online digitally. Um, and so I will be on these press trips I talked about a lot, or I will, you know, stay in like shorter term rentals, Airbnbs, like that kind of stuff in between trips. Um, but I think it's actually, it's not actually, it is a hundred percent cheaper to travel full time than it is to be stationary. 
And I think that's like a common misconception for a lot of people as they think like, oh, like I can never travel or I can never live abroad because I could never afford that. But if you are able to make you know money online or even like traditional jobs or you have a nine to five job, but you work from home, your home could be anywhere as long as you have like a reliable internet connection. And the cost of living in a lot of places is dramatically cheaper than the cost in the US. The US is one of the most expensive places in the world. So like, I love Thailand. I love it. It's an amazing country. And one of the reasons that I love it so much is because the people are very friendly. It's one of the most LGBT firming countries in the world. There's really great food and the quality of life is really high and the cost of living is really low. You're going to have the ability to dramatically cut down your cost of living. Um, but some tips for actually kind of saving money to get there. Uh, you can use, you know, a lot of points and different things in order to travel hack. You can book one-way flights. You can also do like travel alerts on like Skyscanner is a favorite. Um, you can search the everywhere feature. So you could say like, okay, you know, where can I, um, what is the best time to go to a place? What's the cheapest time to book a flight? You can set up alerts through the website and it'll automatically send you emails to let you know. I mean, I'm curious, uh, like with Thailand, how, what do you mean it's so queer affirming and also what would an apartment cost to live there? What would, you know, what do you mean by it's uh, it's very cheap? Okay, so Bangkok, for example, which is the capital of Thailand, is a big city, just like any big city. And you have everything from like, you know, local street food where you could get a dish of pad thai that could probably feed two people, like portion size. And that would be probably 50 baht, which is like, uh, like a dollar and 30 cents. <laughs> Cool. But like for accommodations, like I would say a nicer kind of uh, upscale apartment in a luxury building. We're talking, you know, doorman, gym, pool on the roof, like that kind of thing. Uh, you're looking at maybe like 600 bucks a month. That's pretty good. That's like a higher end. That's high end, you know, for like a, a luxury accommodation. You could get it as cheap as uh, $150 a month. And, you know, you're looking at that's more simple. You know, you still have like electricity and running water and yeah, it's like a one bedroom like all that stuff yeah it's just like not as fancy you're like sacrificing your gym and your doorman and all that for about 150 bucks a month and then thailand is really lgbt friendly because one of the things i think that a lot of people forget is that lgbt people have always existed throughout history and there are a lot of different cultures where lgbt people and particularly people who are gender nonconforming um, have been revered throughout their cultural history. Mm -hmm. And Thailand is one of those, one of those places um, where they have a legally and spiritually recognized uh, third gender. Um, they have a, obviously it's not utopia. There's no perfect place. You right. know, they have their issues as well, but you know, trans people in Thailand, you know, have regular lives and live, in you know they work and you, you go into the mall and it's you know the the person who's your cashier you know you have professional folks who are, are you know working in, in different fields who you know are a trans person um and then it's not as it's not as it's not culturally taboo in the same way that it is in other parts of the world um because it's you know part of their cultural and spiritual heritage um, and so it creates like a lot more acceptance and a lot more tolerance for LGBT people. That's so interesting. Do you do you still like have to spend extra money for safety in Thailand in any way? Well, you don't have to. I mean, you're like you can walk down the street hand in hand with your person and be completely fine. 
Um, but a lot of people when they're on vacation do like to splurge a little bit and it's a high value kind of place. So you like, for example, you can get like a beautiful private pool villa in like one of the islands in Thailand for like less than a hundred bucks a night. Um, but you don't have to do that for your safety. It's more about like, okay, you know, the, this hotel would be 700 bucks a night in my home city mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it's not in Bangkok. So it's a choice thing. Since you're an expert, uh, what are countries doing to increase tourism from LGBT travelers? Like how big can that be for a country's economy? Oh, it can be humongous. Like the, uh, I think the most recent figure was like a hundred billion dollars in LGBT tourism funding just from the U S let alone like all of, you know, people forget like the LGBT community is not a country. Like right. there are LGBT people in every country. So there's like an LGBT China market and an LGBT US market and LGBT literally everywhere. Um, and so especially for folks who are in countries where it's illegal or frowned upon to be LGBT, they're much more likely to travel to places where it is accepting and friendly. Like Tel Aviv is a great example. Like Tel Aviv has one of the biggest pride celebrations in the world. Why? Because they are smack dab in the middle of a ton of Asian countries where it's either illegal or very much, you know, still frowned upon to be LGBT and it's the closest destination. So they get billions and billions of dollars in tourism from LGBT people because people want to go where they can feel safe and they can feel, you know, affirmed and they can hold their person's hand in public and they don't have to hide. And and if you're going to leave your country anyways, why not go to a place where you can feel welcomed? Um, so there's just tons and tons and tons of money in LGBT tourism, but a lot of countries do it really well. And a lot of countries don't do it very well. And the the perfect example of not doing it well is the vast majority of ads that you will see their LGBT marketing campaign. I can like literally paint this picture for you. It's two chiseled dudes holding hands. They're shirtless. There's a beach and a sunset. (laughs) Absolutely. every campaign. And now like a lot of destinations are starting to realize like, okay, that doesn't work anymore for marketing. And they're having conversations about like LGBT is that phrase LGBT is really a marketing term. Whereas like the lesbian, the gay, the bisexual, the transgender, the queer communities, those are different communities that are Mm -hmm. kind of like all lumped together. And they have different needs as travelers and, and, you know, different needs depending on where they're from. Like, you know, do they have kids? Like all of these other things. Um, and so some of the best destinations are really starting to like subset out those unique interests um, and really learning about what those different communities are looking for and doing lots of training for folks on, you know, how do you address those needs? How do you not fuck up an LGBT marketing campaign, basically? Yeah. And it's very it's very nice to see marketing that isn't just uh, very good looking cis white gays. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Not to Agreed. shit on very good-looking cis white gays, but you've gotten a lot of things. Thank you so much, Meg. I really appreciate it. No problem. Have a great day. All right. So some countries are thinking about how to be more accessible to queer communities. That's nice. I still haven't seen an ad with a happy lesbian or bisexual on the beach while I'm at the airport terminal, though. So whatever. Okay. Let's take a little break. When we come back, we're going to call Japan and talk to a man about his experience being black where there really aren't black people. We'll be right back. And we're back. Okay. At some point, I'm sure I have seen interracial hetero couples on airport billboards. 
So minorities haven't been totally overlooked. You probably haven't seen an ad with someone with really dark skin visiting a temple in China, for instance, something like that. I mean, I don't know. If you have seen this, leave a comment. I think that'd be pretty cool to see who is actually doing inclusive advertising. And there really aren't a lot of black people living in Asia. So if you are African-American or black and you make the expensive financial decision to visit or move your life there, well, I can imagine how that might be a big deal. I'm going to call a black teacher who made that kind of decision and moved to Japan years ago. Hello? Hi, is this Timothy? Yes. Hey, this is Gabby. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So can you tell my listeners uh, who you are and what you do? Uh, yes, my name is Tim, and um, I teach English in Japan. Um, where are you from originally? Um, I'm from Tennessee, Knoxville. And where do you live now in Japan? Uh, now I live in Kanagawa. So why did you decide to move to Japan, and how did you start making that happen? Uh, let's see. I think I, I first got interested in Japan when I um, was a kid through like cartoons and games. My mm -hmm. father used to like uh, robots, and um, so we'd watch some anime together. And then as I got older, I just started naturally developing uh, interest in Japan. But when I went to university, I met a lot of Japanese people who um, introduced me to parts of like their culture and their food. And then I studied abroad after that. So um, compared to other developed nations, uh, Japan doesn't have high levels of immigration and they don't see a lot of people that aren't also Japanese. Like immigration's only increased sort of in recent years. Um, and you are a black man. Yep. So how tolerant are the Japanese people to foreigners in general and then also to you? First, it depends on it depends on a lot of things. Like, um, first, whether you're black or a black woman, you know, the experience is a lot different. Um, I, like, I feel like, and I think a lot of people feel like black women deal with a lot, a lot more microaggression than black men in Japan. What do you mean? I don't want to um, <laughs> sound offensive, but there's a lot of, like, emphasis on appearance here. Mm -hmm. Japanese people openly talk about and I don't know if it's maybe they do it because you're a foreigner and they expect you. They just expect you to not be upset about it. They they do have an idea sometimes here that foreigners are just like not sensitive to things, but like talking about your body. Oh, interesting. You know, if you're like a little bit bigger than anything, they'll call you fat jokingly, and you're supposed to just be cool with that. If you have your hair a certain way, they'll they want to touch it. Mm -hmm. I have, I've had so many friends that are women, they ask them like sexual questions. Um, one of my friends in T Tokyo, she's a black woman. Uh, she just gets asked for sex sometimes. And, what? Um, yeah. Um, one of them, and I, I'm telling her story, but one, like, I think last year, a guy just said, Hey, do you want to be sex friends? They say that in English. Um, it's called safe way, which means sex friends. And then, um, she said, I uh, know. And you asked me that last week when you randomly, <laughs> <you> ran into <laughs> Wait, so this is just they kind of assume like a more promiscuousness from from black women. Yeah. Um, and actually, even in dating, I've had some friends say during sex, they would request things like I, one of my friends. She said that the guy asked her to be more like Rihanna. 
because they they just that's their idea of all black women. So like what's your yeah, what's your experience been in terms of like general tolerance? Well, I've had I've mostly had positive experiences uh when it comes to tolerance. Uh, but like uh there are times where um it's really intolerant. Like um the very first lesson I taught for uh I think it was second grade, the week into it, and somebody drew me as a minstrel character and wrote like little sambo or something because they still read that Finnish or some European like uh children's book from a hundred years ago that has like the minstrel portrayal of black kids right it's still in circulation in a lot of countries because yeah because people are like hella irresponsible with what they put out yeah (laughs) i i mean i had a friend who was very very tall this is not comparable at all but he was very very tall and he went to beijing and he took a picture where he is like standing in the crowd and he's much taller than everyone and he right. felt very like people were like, oh, my God, a tall person. And we're acting like it was so wild. Uh, I mean, when mm. you walk around, are you just like, people are looking at me? Oh, I got over that real quick. Uh, <laughs> people look. When I was in North. Oh, yeah. So I guess I should say I used to live in like uh, the countryside. It was far from any foreigner. And the stairs would be like crazy and just like like pointing sometimes. Then I moved to like um, closer to Tokyo. And um, and it dropped off, but I found people taking pictures of me, and I didn't like that. Um, But honestly, the people who take pictures have been Japanese a few times, but usually they're like foreign tourists from, uh, honestly, a lot of Chinese tourists take pictures of black foreigners, and it happens a lot, like a lot, a lot. I don't know what that's about. I think that's a country that doesn't have a lot of uh, black people either. Yeah. Definitely so. Is this just because, I mean, you mentioned like American culture. Is it just because they're like, oh, well, we see Rihanna and we see, you know, Beyonce, Normani, whatever. And we're like, oh, that's like what black women are like. Like, is it just it's all based on pop culture? Oh, you got it. Like, um, it's it's definitely based on Western media and and all that. Um, But um, it's it's weird because a lot of if you tell people like other Japanese people about it, they tend to not see what the big deal is or they'll go, oh, um, it's okay that people think that. It's just because that's what they think. And I'm like, okay. But when you talk to younger people who traveled a little more, like you can't really say many critical things about Japan even jokingly because they get ashamed. Um, So I had to watch what I say unless it's something that they kind of need shame for. Uh, Like, you know, shame is sometimes a good thing. Like when you talk about sexual harassment here right it's wild um and you're like yeah it's it's crazy it's it's not a good thing to to say these things to people and um it happens to me here a lot if you just look at the expression on their face it's like you hurt them personally and it's like golly wow (laughs) i don't know how to phrase it better but it's just something that needs to change you know yeah um hold on my producer wants to ask a question hey timothy so i i was curious um I'm black also, as you know. So I was wondering if in Japan you ever have to spend more money on clothes or getting your hair cut or, um, you know, where you live. Things I have had to think about living in certain areas to seem less threatening, to seem more friendly, to feel safer. Mm. Have you had to experience any of that in Japan? 
Yes. Um, for hair, for the first four years, I had to cut my hair myself. Um, they do not know how to cut our kind of hair. It's just very few people do. I tried to give them a chance. The community was like, you should try and give Japan a chance. <laughs> they fucked me up so bad. Like, I almost cried. My hairline was all kinds of ways. I was like, man, I'd get roasted back home. But I moved down um, to Kanagawa and I found a black barber um, from, he lives on the Navy base and um, he cuts foreigners' hairs. And some Japanese people who want like, uh, like black American style haircuts. So, um, so that's that. It's a it's a it's a headache to get your hair taken care of in Tokyo. There's a lot of black um, barbers and people that can braid your hair that are black and even Japanese, but they're super expensive. But in other ways, yeah, I've definitely played the respectability game where you try to like appear a certain way so people will be nicer to you. Um, I when I was first here, I did everything exactly, um, and then still within a week, I was you know. Like I had students call me a gorilla or like, you know, compare me to different black things. And, you know, I kinda, it didn't really hurt me because I was kind of I was prepared for that kind of thing. They didn't really know the impact of it, but they still knew better. You know, is it that most of them have never met a black person? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is because of that. But it's also like, I mean, they know what rudeness is. Mm-hmm. It's just that you're not Japanese. So it's not a priority to not be rude to you in that way Uh, they wouldn't say it to my face but they would write it on paper and stuff and um i have tried to wear the nicest stuff and look sharp at work all the time and i just got after like year three i just kind of got sick of it because it's like i mean it's nothing changes uh only difference is i'm more uncomfortable so i might as well just wear something a little more casual at work i still i didn't go crazy i wouldn't like had it up with like <laughs> I didn't come in with like Ray Bans and stuff. I just I just uh you know maybe not wearing like maybe just gonna wear like a short sleeve instead of a long sleeve mm-hmm. uh, button down because uh, out of season and see what happens. Nobody said anything, you know. I just take a little step further every time. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, but yeah, so I just stopped. I stopped doing that. There's no reason to go out of my way to do something that's not going to get the results I want and just be uncomfortable. So Japan is a safer place to live than America, I assume, because I think the gun culture is very different. It's really not. Um, It's just not at all common to have a gun crime. It's like once every three years. I think last year someone shot someone with a machine gun. That was wild. I just, uh, it's, it's really rare. So I never feel like I'm going to get shot. Now, police. Here's the thing. Police um, can still profile you. Um, you're not going to get punched or brutalized in public, at least. Uh, but they do this thing where they ask you a question and they surround you when you're a foreigner. Um, for example, my wife was uh, at the station and she saw um, a black person and a police questioning him. Um, my wife isn't black, but, you know. She's uh she knows a lot of stuff because I tell her a lot of stuff about how, you know, things are back home. Mm-hmm. And she saw it here. Three police officers asking questions, but they surrounded this black man and they got really close and they were treating him like he was going to be aggressive. And he was like, wait, you don't have to surround me. Like and, you know, the people around were just like, oh, my gosh, they were recording it. And they were like, well, what, this looks so dangerous, you know. 
And it's just the anticipation that you're going to do something. So she stayed and watched just in case something happened so she can, you know, document it, you know, and maybe it'd be useful to to the guy later because it was clearly it was being in it was being it the police were being antagonistic and they don't I don't know if they didn't realize it or cared or no yeah just, I mean that happens like you know I, I you see people stopping now to film if if someone you know if a cop stops a black person there are definitely people who stop and are like let me just watch this for a minute to make sure this is going okay um, oh yeah uh, so the cops mm. are still are they just also influenced by western pop culture um, yes they are but I think it's also foreignness because um, I think generally foreigners as a whole in their minds are more dangerous. Um, well, here too, the, people think that. Yeah. I think the darker the foreigner is, the more dangerous they are in their minds. And um, yeah, um, some Japanese people think that like the first thing you say is when you talk about a crime story in Japan, they all like a lot of people will be like, are they Korean? Were they Chinese? Like that's the first <laughs> thing they ask. And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't ask. I didn't. Wow. It's also interesting. But then it's also interesting because the idea of you saying like there was one gun crime and it was crazy is yeah. like, how many do I read about a day here in the U.S.? Yeah. And it's a good trade off. I mean, it's not a good trade off, but it's a good it's a really good. Um, I mean, I really like living here. Um, I have a lot of things I don't like, but I'm gen- I'm pretty happy. And um. I'm, I feel safe. Uh, it's so nice to feel safe, but I'm not, um, I'm not sure I can say it's a safe country. Um, it's just safer in, in comparison to America, which is not really saying that much. Um, (laughs) if, uh, if you send medicine in the mail, like NyQuil here, that's considered a narcotic and you can go to jail. Like, uh, there's so many stories of someone's grandmother sending well, I heard you were sick, so I sent you some cold medicine. And then the receiver gets arrested and sits in jail for 23 days. What? Um, yep. And the police officers here are, like, nice usually, but a lot of them want to be the one to do a drug bust. So they don't care who they got to pin it on. That's scary. You know, it's really scary. So I can't really sit here and say it's like a, I mean, the gun crime being low, that's fantastic. but. I don't know. I just don't trust the police here either. <laughs> so, well, breaking news: bad with money. We don't trust the police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, okay. So one last thing, because we we have been talking shit. Why do you love living in Japan? Uh, safety <laughs> and food. Uh, uh, it's safe and it's also easy. It's also easy to make a career i i like i really enjoy teaching english and i'm pretty good at it i know what words to say that are easier to understand for like new learners so it's it's always easy for me to find a bunch of small gigs um i teach in different cafes sometimes on my as my part-time job and it's a great way to like make like long lasting friends a lot of my friends now like old and young people that i've taught for years privately and um i don't know it's it's uh it's really easy to do to make money mm-hmm. and um it's really safe and public transportation is awesome so um <laughs> those are the things that keep me from going back 
And would yeah, I mean, would you ever come back, or you're kind of like Japan is better? Uh, I'm. I mean, I got black friends here, but man, I really miss black people. So I just like, I, I'm definitely going back. Uh, <laughs> that's that's it. Community, like you know, I really miss uh, uh, my family and just being a part of my community back home. So yeah, that's definitely happened. But um, as for now, I'm just gonna enjoy enjoy this until I have a child. Then I'm going back home. Is it is it like have to do with because it's like well I'm not gonna raise a black kid here. That's that's a big part of it. Um, it's also stress. I, I just don't like the nature of work here. Like people pour a lot of themselves into a job that um, doesn't know they exist. Sometimes I just uh, and that's and that and people are proud of that here. I just don't want my child to grow up with that kind of mentality. I just uh, I just don't like that demand from society from people um Mm -hmm. throw yourself away for the greater good of somebody else's wallet like no thanks Mm -hmm. and uh, there's there's a lot of things like that and um it's easy and uh, the rest of it is you know um it's people tolerate you here but as a like as a mixed kid but or like a non-asian japanese resident but I don't think you'll be celebrated in the way that you should be like you would in your own community back home, you know? So, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much. This was like really, really interesting. And I think a thing that people, um, I think you hear from a lot of white people who've moved to Japan and and not a lot of uh, people of color in general who have moved to Japan. So I really appreciate it. Uh, Yeah, no, no problem. I really enjoyed talking about it. Wow, that was really fascinating and eye-opening. I feel like it's important for us to be honest and talk about this kind of uncomfortable stuff because planning and budgeting for your new life abroad can only get you so far. And most of the info out there is for one specific type of person. Yes, it is a massive financial risk to uproot your life and live in another country. And for a lot of people, it's even a huge investment just to travel outside the U.S., And if you haven't considered that you might be isolated or targeted as a woman, a person of color, a queer person, a disabled person, a trans person, I don't know, just carefully consider your plans. Unfortunately, if you may be living somewhere new, you got to consider how who you are may affect your ability to get work. Or all the little ways you may end up spending extra money to feel safe and accepted in a new cultural community. As I say all of this practical and sensible stuff, please know that I am seething inside that all of this is a thing. Can't I do the touring vacation in Mexico I'm planning with my trans partner and not fully expect to be the only queer people part of it? Maybe I'll be wrong. Who knows? Maybe we'll meet a lovely lesbian couple while we're there. And please, can't I just have my lesbian or bisexual on a beach billboard at the airport? I mean, I'm not asking for a lot here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us. I say this every episode because it is seriously important. Tell all your friends about us so we can get more folks listening. And make sure you've subscribed on the Stitcher app or wherever you find your podcasts. Even just leave a review that says, good podcast, and then five stars. You don't have to write a whole thing. Just write, like it, five stars. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns. Our audio is edited by Andy Christens. And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. And our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. 
You can also get merch for Bad With Money on podswag.com, so please do that. I'm obviously Gabby Dunn, and I will see you next week.